all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, July 31st, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebert with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euron. Katrina, this week I've got a bit of a hot take for you. What do you think about this one? The most interesting fish in the world is the common carp. Oh, that sounds like blasphemy, guy. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of our fans would say, too. <laughs> blasphemy. Yeah, it also sounds like a Dos Equis interesting man commercial. But yeah, we recognize that praising this fish is going to draw some ire from folks, but we think it's important. And guys have been real excited about common carp for a long time. Why is that guy? It is just one of those fish that it does get a lot of hate over here. A lot of times justifiably, but when you look back at how this fish has related to humans throughout our history and the importance that it still holds today in a lot of places, as well as in the U.S., I do think there is a case to be made that it is the most interesting fish. I do believe that. Okay. And we do recognize that all fish are interesting in their own right. Like I mentioned, common carp has an incredibly rich history and they can provide both positive and negative experiences depending on where you are and what your preferences are. Other fish we've covered that fall into this type of camp include things like the snakehead and the sea lamprey, both of which are hated by some and loved by others. So we're going to take a deep dive into the common carp for this episode and hope by the end, and I'm going to quote some Princess Bride for you 80s babies, perhaps that you will not find her common now. And you know what else is blasphemy, guy? What's that? Not watching that movie. I've seen parts of it over the course of several years. (laughs) Just watch the whole thing. It's really good. Before we dig in, we think it's worth contrasting some definitions. So like native versus invasive versus introduced or exotic, just so we're all on the same page. So like, Guy, how would you define a native species? A native fish is any fish that naturally exists in a given body of water. That means that it was not put there with human intervention. Okay. And that's in contrast to invasive species, which are not from an area and cause or are likely to cause economic or environmental harm or harm to human health. And then introduced or exotic species aren't invasive until that harm comes into play. Common carp can kind of fit all those categories. And that's why they're so interesting. You know, carp is a broad term that's often applied to a lot of different fish that come from a couple different categories. So Katrina, what are some of the other carps that are not the common carp? Well, we have your black carp, big head carp, silver, grass, crushin. Is that how you say crushin? Crucian? Crucian? That's how I pronounce it. Crucian? And collar? The collar carp, I think, is a hybrid between the goldfish, which is another Carassius. You mentioned the Crucian carp, which is in the genus Carassius with the goldfish. And then the collar carp is a hybrid that can occur between the common carp and the goldfish. Spelling bee time. You've mentioned the big head and the silver. Genus Hypothalmichthys. Do you want to give that a shot for us? (laughs) Say it again for me. Hypothalmichthys. Oh, okay. H Y P O. Okay. P H L A M I C E S. Close. Wrong. 
H-Y-P-O-P-H-T-H-A-L-M-I-C-H-T-H-Y-E-S. Or sorry, Y-S. Ooh, I missed it by a lot. So in terms of what this fish looks like, I mean, so common carp, they're a thick brownish fish. They've got two barbels of their mouth on each side. One's kind of long, like the ends of a hipster mustache. And one is <laughs> barely noticeable. It's more small, like a five o'clock shadow or like a prepubescent stash. You've got to look closely for it. They've got big, beautiful scales, unless you've got something in hand like Heather the Leather or some of those other less scaled varieties we'll talk about in a bit. Reddish fins, usually one to eight pounds. So that's similar to something like a Labrador puppy or a female cat. The current record in terms of weight for the largest common carp is held by a Dutchman who caught 112-pound, 14-ounce fish in Hungary pretty recently, 2018. That's the size of a baby hippo. And for folks who aren't familiar with that reference, that's like three cinder blocks or a recliner chair. Wait, three cinder blocks? Around 100 pounds. Aren't cinder blocks like 10 pounds? Oh, I don't think so. They're pretty heavy. I'm going to Google quick. 37 pounds. Okay. They did not feel that heavy. Fair enough. So this is a great time to mention just some of the other species folks tend to confuse with carp. In general, whether it's common carp or some of the other carps that Guy and I have already described here, one is the native buffalo. So buffalo are super cool fish in a totally different family. They're in the sucker family. They're the largest and the longest lived of the North American suckers. And they get big like carp, similar body shape. Some of their obvious differences are that they don't have those barbels. If you look at their cheek, they've got kind of a light patch on their cheek big, dark, puppy-like eyes, and they live to be well over 100 years old. So yeah, don't mistake them for a carp and kill them thinking you're doing something good for the environment. Some of the other native catastomids like suckers, red horse, carp suckers, they aren't related to carp either. And you can really look to their mouth to kind of get a feel for how they're different. The mouth is really papillose, so it's got these little like bumps and kind of thicker lips than you'd see on a carp. And they also have a lack of barbels. So really just a plea to get to know your fish so there's no question what you're looking at. If you were hunting a deer, you wouldn't shoot a cow and go like, oops, right? So just a little note in there in terms of appearance. It is worth noting too, those carp suckers, like your quillback, high fin river carp suckers, they do look a lot like carp. Like until you get them in the hand and really look at the mouth, like I've had fish that I thought was a common carp when it was like at my feet. And until I picked it up, it was like... You got to look. Yeah, you got to get right up there by the, the mouth. The scale see. pattern is very similar. They look very okay. similar. Guy, can you talk a little bit about the various forms and subspecies of the common carp? Yeah. So the common carp, as we know, it's also called the Eurasian carp. And there are a few subspecies that exist within it. Some people are considering them at their own species level, but you have the Transcaucasian one is the one that really kind of made its way over to Europe. Then you have the Aral Sea variety, which is another one of those inland sort of Central Asian lakes. You have the Amur carp, which is now one that people are calling its own species. And then you have that was kind of Eastern Asia, Northeastern Asia. And then you have the North Vietnamese subspecies. And within that, you also have different genetic varieties. Among those, kind of the two big ones that you see are the mirror carp and the leather carp. There's these recessive traits that can cause the scales to either be big, elongated, mirror-like scales or not present at all. 
they're very similar. Just the scales and the lack of scales is kind of what you can be picturing in your mind, correct? Yeah. Just smoother skin, just a few scales near the top. I've seen a lot. Anything else with them? You can have sort of like a weird combination too. So, you know, there are mirror carp that are like fully scaled, but they have these, they're like extremely tall, long. You'll look at it and it doesn't look like a fish scale. It looks like a razor clam shell or something like that. Yeah, they're cool. And they're all wonky looking. You mentioned the scales on the regular common carp, which I think are some of the most pretty scales out there. They're They're big, they're golden. You can see the annuli, the rings on them. Very cool. And then, so so the mirror carp have these big, they call them mirror-like scales. I don't exactly see the resemblance to a mirror, but hey. Some of these ones will also have lots of patches of bare skin. Mm-hmm. And then the leather carp basically have no scales with the exception of a few generally up sort of right close to the dorsal fin. But yeah, it's basically, you know, like a scaleless kind of carp. Okay. Which again, that comes back, yeah, that idea of kosher stuff and beavers are kosher. And I've, can't confirm with 100% accuracy that this is the case. But one thing that I heard was that, you know, this fish was cultured in aquaculture for a long time, going back thousands of years. It was just a great pond fish. And really, especially by, you're thinking this black sea area over in the Middle East, there are, there's food laws. in, for instance, like, like kosher food laws say that for a fish to be kosher, for something that swims in the water to be kosher, it has to have scales. But you can imagine that having scales on a fish makes it difficult to clean. So if you're breeding these fish and you can find that, okay, we can make some, they either have these big scales that are easier to get off or like the leather carp where they have only a few scales up so cool. sort of by the dorsal fin. Yeah. yeah. That it's going to make it where, okay, this fish technically meets the kosher requirements, but is a lot easier to clean. So that's one story I've heard about how these came about. And then they got spread all over throughout Europe through these monasteries that were being established because, you know, The Christians, they had their own food rules, too. And one of the things is the monks could not eat meat, but they could eat fish. And so they got really good at culture and common carp. It's generalist just ability to live in a variety of water conditions, eat lots of different food, make it a great fish for aquaculture. And so as these monasteries set up throughout Europe, they would take this practice of carp farming with them. And gradually they just spread all over the continent that way throughout the Middle Ages. They can handle also pretty low oxygen conditions. You know, you're thinking, okay, we're starting off down in the Black Sea, sort of South Mediterranean, that's pretty warm climate. But they can actually exist pretty well, even if you get ice over on ponds. So they're doing well enough in Germany and over in England and places like that. So that's kind of how they spread out through Europe as a food fish. And it became really popular, still popular, especially in like Central and Eastern Europe all the Christmas dishes over in places like the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. Hungary, Poland, people still eat a lot of carbon, especially associate with Christmas. Um, I was actually reading a little bit about the Christmas thing and I've never had carp for Christmas or anything like that, but my family is from Poland and Germany on my dad's side. Oh, So before this episode, did a little research. It turns out in Poland, at least during the 16th and 17th centuries, that was kind of the golden age of Polish pond carp fishing. Really? As well. And yeah, most of the carp consumption takes place around Christmas. The most famous Polish breed of carp is the royal carp. And I can't pronounce it. I might have my dad pronounce it for me. Okay. Yeah. I got some cool names in Germany and in Poland in terms of like the Franconian pond cow, the Holstein carp, the Christmas carp. <laughs> well, I heard too, like 
when it, it's rare and kind of hard to come by, it's always like an exclusive fancy food. And like mm-hmm. back in the day, I think that this was like a fish of royalty. And I'd heard like a story about, you know, mm-hmm. King Henry VIII there over in England. We all know him and his many he ate a lot. Yeah, you know, he was he a big a boy. He liked to eat. <laughs> and uh, But at one time, you know, you have a flood and these carp got out. And even still, you know, I think technically the queen owns like all the sturgeon and a variety of the fish over there in in England. And so he owned the carp and he wanted all the people to bring the carp back to him because they were his carp and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, I think it was a royal fish back in the day. Now it's kind of more of a common pulp fish. Yeah. I wonder if they brought it back or if they snuck a couple for themselves, probably get beheaded or something. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't think that people were bringing the carp back. So common is such kind of a meh or like ordinary name. I assume that's just, yeah, based on distribution and there's some other common names too, but like, yeah. What are some other areas outside of the European countries you've talked about where carp are important or, you know, cultured or important for food? So, yeah. So we've talked sort of about the European side and that trans-Caucasian subspecies that got spread over Europe, but there's several subspecies that are over in East Asia. Uh, We're talking all the way from North China, sort of south of Siberia, all the way down into Vietnam and your sort of Indochina Peninsula. And today, carp are being cultivated over there at what was an extremely high rate, especially in China, like probably 95 to 99% of carp productions coming out of China. But it makes, when you think about how many people are over there and how many people they're trying to feed, like in 2018, I read this in one study that 25% of all global aquaculture production was carp. Dang. So that's counting all invertebrates, seaweed, stuff like that. When you start talking about just fin fish, so just like the typical fish are being cultured, it's over 50% of the world's fin fish production is common carp. Dang. So people are eating these. And this this is down from a peak of over 70% in the late 90s. So this isn't just a back in the day, people ate this, and then we found better things to eat. It is still very common. They must have a good feed conversion ratio or something, or yeah, be easy to culture and all that. That's kind of the point I was making earlier about, you know, the variety of conditions that they can live in. They're a very adaptable fish, and we'll get into how that can make them good invasive species later. We see a lot of these fish that are good for aquaculture can also become good invasive. You look at your cichlids, for instance, as well. So, so yeah, they're being raised in mass in China. And then you go a little bit north, you go to Japan, and you know what's going on there? You got your koi, which, so, you know, we're talking about this common fish, this brassy bronze, the fish that people eat, the fish that people kill over here. It's the same species, asterisk, Amur carp, we're going to call them the same species, that was mm-hmm. cultivated in the court. We talked on our goldfish episode, I believe, how you know the traditional form of goldfish is just kind of like a normal minnow color. And then they found these yeah. orange varieties and they breed selectively for them. Now there's, you know, dozens of these varieties of koi that are selectively bred for. I think the most expensive one is an individual sold for $1.8 million. Oh my God. For a single fish. So, you know. Again, same species. Over here, you can kill them indiscriminately and people will applaud you in some circles. Same species, people are paying multiple millions of dollars for them. So That is crazy. Wild. 
Jumping over to North America, I mean, the carp also have a food history. I mean, it's yeah. kind of cool to think about how something like a brown trout and a carp, both fish that have been mm. introduced, kind of have these different trajectories. But yeah, I mean, common carp was introduced a bunch, I think, during the 1800s as a food fish. And we can kind of go into some examples here in a minute. But what are your thoughts on kind of those two fish and this interesting where all these fish have played through history and perceptions and how they've changed through time? That is a really good point you bring up there, Katrina. I I got friends who their favorite fish is the brown trout, and I always bust their balls a little bit about it just because, <laughs> you know, okay, America, we are a nation of immigrants. And when those immigrants, a lot of them from Eastern and Central Europe, came over here, they're used to eating carp, and they found no carp, they started petitioning the U.S. Fish and Fisheries Commission, Spencer Fullerton Baird. There he's getting thousands of letters a year saying, hey, we need to bring some of these carp over here. This is the late 1800s. Around the same time, brown trout were being brought over. And now it gets kind of in the weeds what exactly the purpose was of brown trout, whether it's sport or food, because the two really overlap. Yeah. You know, recreational angling did exist, you know, catch and release and everything like that. But, you know, a lot of times fish were being brought over, people would go, they'd catch them to eat them. So they're all sort of yeah. intertwined. Yep. But these two fish got brought over around the same time and for very similar purposes and were both spread around the country, both intentionally and unintentionally. And it's just been interesting to see how over the years they really did take two different paths. You said two different tra trajectories. Mm -hmm. and I like that term because the brown trout has kind of just skyrocketed to stardom as a sport fish. And you think about kind of like the trout snob, like, oh, like, you know, a very specific experience with a sleek kind of fish. But then carp have really yeah, gone the other direction where people don't like them. Pew! Some people don't like Some them. Some people, yeah. A lot of, uh, Some people do. I would say that the general consensus among the American population is still to yeah. view carp as a trash fish and something that should be removed, yeah. avoided if possible. Just another example, you know, even down here, I work with people who are in like aquatic conservation, you know, native species and everything like that, but they still, they celebrate the wild brown trout fishery that exists down in Atlanta, mm -hmm. which is cool that it exists, but is there a real difference between the common carp and the brown trout? Arguably the common carp fights a lot better than a brown trout will. Ooh. I think one of the things too, one of the reasons why the, this perception is trout rely on clean, clear, crisp water to thrive. Whereas common yep. carp are these generalists that can exist in a variety of, you can catch them in the Great Lakes. I know people who fly fish for them in the same rivers where they fly fish for brown trout, mm -hmm. but they can also exist in sloughs and canals and places where, you know, ugly habitats, ugly habitat. And you know, there's been a lot of changes in the U.S. landscape and landscapes around the world that have degraded waterways. And, you know, the fish that might be native there may no longer be able to exist there. But the common carp can come in and they can where people fish for these in the L.A. River. If you've ever seen the L.A. River, this thing this is barely a river. It's flowing through cement and people will go down there and they'll catch they call them Tijuana trout down there. I have one word. Terminator. You seen that movie? I've not seen the Terminator. Ah, I'm just thinking of Arnold <laughs> riding his motorcycle down into the L.A. River and like pausing and catching a carp. I think we should rewrite that one. But you got to see that one, too. <laughs> OK, 
sometimes these habitats get degraded and the carp are then just, you know, there's nothing else there to compete and the carp can do it. And so people start associating them with these poorly maintained habitats, even though they can exist just as well in pristine habitats. I think that there's a perception that clear water is good, turbid water is bad. Right. Mm. And I think that kind of has to tie in with like the 60s and the Clean Water Act and when like the Lake Erie was on fire and people just have this perception about turbid waters and that they're bad. But they're actually a lot of systems where it's good. I mean, natural sediment transport. We've learned a lot of about really cool fish that inhabit these waters, pallid sturgeon, blue sucker, you know, pike minnow. So I think that as well is in part playing into that perception that makes trout and carp kind of go down a different trajectory. That's a good point. That's a good point. And brought up, you know, the Great Lakes too, you know, we've seen what zebra mussels have done up there. Yeah, they've made it more clear, but is that better? Arguably, no. It's like more dead, dead in some cases or yeah, less productivity. It's not as productive or it might be as productive, but you know, muscle productivity, which is not what you're hoping for. Yeah. And then we do get things down here where, you know, we have lots of sediment pollution. Do you think there's anything to do with the bone structure of the fish, like a trout versus a carp and the Y bones and just the ease of filleting and just kind of perceptions about that? That's another good point. Now, this is a trajectory that's happened both in Western Europe and in North America, particularly the U.S. and Canada, where you're seeing a preference for filleted fish. People aren't eating whole fish so much like you might see over in Asia, over in Eastern Europe, Africa, other parts of the world. And so these fish are not the easiest to flay. And they do have these Y bones, these intramuscular bones that some people can find unpalatable if you get one stuck in your tongue. or something. And that is true. You know, they are bony fish, but that doesn't mean that they're inedible. You can bake them. You can pick the bones out. It's not a problem. And, you know, there's other parts of the fish that get eaten, too. I know you love your salmon eggs and salmon gametes up Mm -hmm. there. These eggs are not nearly as big. Carp can be very fecund. A Mm. female can have like 300,000 eggs in her at a time. And, you know, with multiple spawns a year, you can have over a million eggs from a single female. But, you know, people will take those. I've heard them make like grind them into like a paste like a hummus type textury sort of thing, add some oils Ooh, to it. I bet you it does not taste like hummus. The texture I hear is similar. <laughs> or worth f- a try. frying them up. I do feel bad. This was my first attempt to try to catch snakeheads. I was out on the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, shout out Fish and Wildlife Service, looking for snakeheads. <laughs> and it had rained, it was having a miserable job. And I came around this corner and I, again, it's an estuary, but I thought I heard waves crashing. And I swear, I thought, like, okay, I gotta be coming around, I'll see the ocean. But no, just hundreds of common carp getting up into these weed beds and spawning and splashing about. And so I saw that like, ah, this is awesome. I just got a bow fishing rig. I'm going to go and I'm going to hunt some carp. So I paddled back, got my bow. I was not very good, but I did get a couple. I felt bad because I I filleted them while I was on the kayak because I didn't want to take the whole fish back to the swanky living in D.C. suburb and be putting a bunch of... (laughs) You see, this is the perceptions getting to me, the, the having the stinky yep. full of fish carcasses going out. I was worried about appearance. I was bending to perceived peer pressure that I might have. Oh, man. Guy. But I discarded the carcass along with the organs and even the eggs. But I should have brought the eggs back and tried to make those. Made the hummus. Yeah.
So this species was spread across the landscape to support fisheries, eventually fell out of favor, now generally viewed as a pest. Yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of some of the problems carp present across the landscape and how they can affect habitats and affect different fish. One example that comes to mind is Utah Lake Mm. and Utah's endemic June sucker, which we covered in an earlier episode. And June suckers, another sucker, obviously really cool native fish, uh, mid-level planktivore. They can get quite big and some folks might even confuse them with a carp as well. But when this ichthyologist who we've talked about in the past, David Starr Jordan, he was exploring the fishes of the West in the late 1800s. He visited Utah Lake, where the June sucker lives. And the suckers were so abundant that they got their boat stuck on a shoal of them, which I can't even imagine. But he went on to call Utah Lake the greatest sucker pond in the universe. And that was until the Dos Equis fish came along, <laughs> messed it all up. So when the non-native carp were introduced as a food fish, so this was again in the 1800s, they root around and um, forage like that. They killed the rooted aquatic plants that the June sucker need to, you know, complete their life history. And today there's actually a large scale effort to rid the lake of carp. And when we talked with the June sucker recovery implementation program folks, they were about to hit, I think, about 30 million pounds of common carp removed. And that was through commercial fishery. So that's one example of how they've, yeah, very much negatively impacted a cool native species. Definitely not good everywhere. Yeah. We've talked about how humans have spread them, but isn't there some study about eggs and waterfall? There is. This is one of my favorite papers that I've read in the last couple of years, <laughs> just because of how interesting it is. But what they did was they fed fertilized common carp eggs to some ducks, some waterfowl. I forget exactly what species, and tried to figure out what would happen when they came out the other end. I bet you this study doesn't get published if none of them hatch, but some of them did hatch after passing through the gastrointestinal tract of these ducks. And so that is now listed as a possible uh, dispersion mechanism for common carp is, you know, potentially laying these eggs, having the birds eat them, whether they're intentionally eating the eggs or eating the plants that they're associated with and then pooping them out. Now, granted, it was a very small percentage of the eggs that ended up surviving and hatching. But when you're dealing with, a million yeah. plus eggs per individual, just a couple. That'll One of work. them's going to make it. There's not a lot of things that can pass through a digestional tract no. and survive. I think we've done a great job doing outreach, at least here in North America, that includes invasive species messaging, um, particularly around fish like carp, sea lamprey, and snakeheads. But what we've not done a great job of is making sure folks aren't getting those non-native species confused with native kind of similar looking fishes that are in completely different families. We've mentioned buffalo, but also things like bowfin are some species that come to mind. I know here in Alaska, even there's been like a big effort to talk about how northern pike are invasive, but Mm. that's only in south central Alaska where they're causing problems, but elsewhere in the state, they're native and really important. Sea lamprey have experienced this phenomenon too, where folks hate lamprey, but they're actually really useful in their native range, like in the northeast, but not in the Great Lakes. So you know, a bunch of different lamprey species that are kind of on the negative receiving end of those perceptions too. So again, just kind of, as we talk about carp, making sure to really kind of recognize that there are native species that people confuse and just how perceptions are tied in with carp and these species. Kind of reminds me of that no junk fish bill that just passed in Minnesota recently. That's really kind of separating, 
you know, things like carp that are not native from species that are are native and making sure that, you know, rough fish, or that's that term that's being used to kind of clump these different fish together that aren't sport fish or like always super valued. There's a movement to kind of separate those things out, which is cool. Yeah, it's kind of a cool shift in perspective away from categorizing by typical modern use to one where it's focused more on their role in the ecosystem in some ways. Yep. We should probably get into carp angling. Mm. What can you tell me? I know you mentioned bow fishing and, you know, with a fish like this that has such a rich history in all these different places, like what are some of the ways to catch a common carp? I mean, I know they have a particular feeding ecology and behavior, but what are some fun ways that you've heard about or ways that you've used yourself? Well, where to start with this? Let's go back a little bit and talk about the trajectory of the carp in Western Europe. Because we mentioned that, you know, over this time, we're talking about like the last century-ish, the common carp as a food fish is kind of fell out of favor in Western Europe and North America. But whereas in the U.S., the fish has also fell out of favor as an angling species. Over in Europe, it has ascended to the prominence of being the top sport fish in as far as anyone concerned. And this is in England, in continental Europe, down to Italy. It is a really fascinating fishing culture. They got all these gadgets and gizmos that are made specifically for catching and releasing the carp. They have special landing mats, de-hooking mats to make sure they don't damage any of the scales. They have little sacks that you can keep on the water because, you know, trying to catch big fish is kind of the, the big yeah. thing over there. Making sure that the fish is in good condition when it's weighed. They even sell, I've seen it for sale, antiseptic solution that you can treat the fish's hook puncture before releasing back in the water. And there, there's a lot of differences in American and British and European fishing cultures that can lead to this, but it's just interesting to see all this. Stuff. They got all these racks for having multiple rods out there that will send off. They'll give you signals when you're getting a bite. They have little slingshots specially designed for chumming out the waters, different baits, different hooking techniques. They have these hair rigs where the bait's not actually on the hook. The hook's sort of adjacent, so the bait sort of floats freely and then can get pulled in and then exhaled by the carp. And so it's just really fascinating. I think what you're saying about all these techniques to like make sure the fish is happy and healthy when it's released, it kind of ties into that specimen fishing mm. term that we haven't talked about on this show. So this is really where people are focused on catching a large sized fish in particular or with carp, particularly a specific fish. And there's some yeah. fish that have been caught and released like over a thousand times. It's super interesting in terms of like getting to know these fish. They have... Heather the Leather. She was my favorite. Yep. Um, a cart called the Carrots. A baby whale known as Mary. There's also Mary's Mate. There's a cracking old mirror known as the Causeway Fish. There's Split Tail, Two-Tone, Benson, and Clarissa. So very different than kind of the culture here in North America. And I mean, supposedly Heather the Leather, which is my favorite name. She was a leather carp. Yeah, I mean, she was caught and released a thousand times. She was around 50 when she passed. And anglers actually buried her near the lake with a headstone in a memorial rosebush. Apparently, she was maybe the most famous fish in Britain, the Judy Dench of the fish world. And she made a lot of people happy. And there, she might have had a competitor, but... I heard towards the end, Benson was rivaling her 
as most popular fish. The, you know, Angler's Magazine over there, or Angler's Mail, called her the people's fish, Benson. <laughs> and unfortunately, Benson was, her life was cut short. She died at 25, even though she was over 64 pounds. Oh. And there was a conspiracy that people had accidentally been fishing with uh, uncooked nuts, which the fish can't process. And oh. that led to her death. Although other people say that it was actually like her reproductive system got kind of gummed up and that's what led to it. But either way, oh. a massive fish cut down in her prime. They yeah. both, Heather the Leather and Benson, I think died within like a year or two of each other. It was big loss. Big loss. I looked at all the pictures of these fish and like you can really tell the anglers like love them like they're like looking at them there's a lot of respect when they're holding these fish for there's sure. definitely some um, things that could come over to the u.s uh, about how to care for them i mean the, the keep them wet movement you know these guys they got it yeah. down to science maybe we can get that going for the buffalo that kind of love i mean it sounds a little different over there than here are there any techniques that have been imported to the u.s and have caught on among any subsets of anglers here so there have been and in fact in the in recent decades i'd say the last 20 25 years or so carp fishing as a sport has begun to grow in the u.s as part of that because of the advent of the internet and mass communications maybe or but people are bringing over these techniques both from Europe and from Asia to focus on fishing for these carp. And so there is the American Carp Society, which has all kinds of gear and advice on how to go out and target fish. I think in 2005, the World Carp Championship was held in North America for the first time. And then you're also seeing a conversion of people who are using more traditional fishing techniques, in particular fly fishing, because... These fish, one of the reasons that they're so popular, that they get big, but they're also a real challenge to catch. We talk about goldfish having such a short memory. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but carp are known as being one of the highest IQ fish and having one of the longest memories. And they learn <laughs> to not get caught, especially these big ones. Except for Heather the Leather. I read somewhere, I wasn't going to challenge you because, you know, they, they also keep really good <laughs> records of who caught this fish. And that 1,000 was exaggerated. That was more like 100 or something. Oh, there's still a lot, though. I don't know. It, it was caught, oh, she was caught a lot. But the point being that they, they learn and they're difficult to catch. When you do hook up with them, they are a challenge to bring in. We've talked about how good a fight in suckers can be. All these cypriniform fishes can fight really well. So you can imagine trying to bring in a 50-pound fish. Even the ones that I've caught, which have been more along the, you know, five to six pound range or smaller, have put up really good fights. I'm using lighter tackle. But you're seeing these people who has kind of come full circle. We started talking about the brown trout and the common carbon, how they went on these two different trajectories. Now some of the people who are most highly associated with like brown trout fishing, you know, guides out in Montana, they'll take people out to catch big 20 plus inch brown trout for a guided trip. But then when it comes to like, okay, it's my turn to go fishing, they get a day off, they're going to fish for common carp on the fly. And so it really has, in some circles, come full circle where people are appreciating the common carp in the U.S. again. And, you know, the flies that they're using for these, you know, they're just developing all kinds of stuff. And a lot of times they're just, they're weighted really heavy. They could be anything from mimicking a crawfish or a goby up there in the Great Lakes or in some of the more turbid waters, like a leech type pattern. In general, they have these dumbbell eyes with the hooks pointed up though. And they got to look sort of alive in the water because they're also 
super spooky fish. They will not let you get very close. And so the people that I've talked to who fly fish for them, particularly in rivers and stuff, you got to sight fish for them from a long ways away. Some people will pull for them if they're in boats on the lakes. And you got to put your cast dead on. And even then, that's not a guarantee yep. that they're going to eat. So a real challenge, real fun to catch is what I've heard. Come in full circle. I mean, do you think we've made the case that common carp is the most interesting fish in the world still? I hope so. You know, hope that people think, you know, you look at the interesting history between people and fish. They might not be the most interesting from a biological perspective or from an ecological perspective. But when you take into account the anthropological as well as all these other things, they just check so many boxes that I think they have to be in the conversation for most interesting fish. And again, that's not best fish. It's not coolest fish. It's not necessarily my favorite fish. I think if I had to choose the most interesting fish for all of human history to consider, it would have to probably be the seemingly lowly in the U.S. common carp, (laughs) Cyprinus carpio. The dog of fish. The dog of fish. It really is. It really (laughs) is the dog of fish. You know, when you think... We, we brought in the wolves and they're with us every step of the way now. The common carp is with us every step of the way, whether we're looking for a meal, whether we're looking for sport, whether we're looking for an icon to put on our money, the common carp will be there for you, <laughs> whatever your sensibilities. Awesome. Uh, common carp. You know, on this podcast, we encourage folks to appreciate all the fish and we really like to dig into all the details and nuances of each fish that we talk about each species has its own history and some species as we've really kind of covered have quite that interesting history with so many facets and no fish is all bad and i guess what we can take away is we really should be thinking about how our actions impact systems if we introduce a fish to a place where it's not from how will that impact other native fish who are already present How will it impact wildlife who depend on fish? How will it impact people that are connected to those native fish that are already established like fishing traditions? Just being really intentional and thoughtful with their actions and well-informed. So we hope this podcast helps with that and this discussion was useful for you and that you continue to learn about and appreciate all the fish, including the dog of fish, the Judy Dench of fishes, (laughs) the common carp. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.